Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to talk about quite a few topics. Uh, in particular, we're going to be talking a bit about identifying dependency syndromes in uh, a variety of drugs, and the drugs we're t- going to be talking about mainly are going to be alcohol, opioids, uh, cannabis, and methamphetamines. Um, simple interventions and managements of withdrawals, as well as treatments of these conditions. So it's going to be a pretty information-dense episode, isn't it, Fergal? Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. So let's let's make a start. So let's focus purely on alcohol for the meantime. So mm-hmm. the way I understand this matrix is we need to talk about the dependency thresholds, the, the differentiation between recommending a home-based withdrawal versus an inpatient withdrawal, and then actually what are the the, the management techniques for withdrawal. So what do you think is the threshold for dependency? How can you tell if someone actually needs withdrawal management from alcohol? So this is a question that is both, sometimes it can be quite simple and sometimes it can be quite complicated. And it really depends on A, what the person is telling you, but B, some of the questions that you're asking. Now, there are some simple screening questions that we can we can do to try and gauge or or determine if someone's dependent. And I'm talking about the, the CAGE questionnaires and the audit screening tools. And they can sometimes give us quite a bit of um, information as to if someone has problematic alcohol use. They're not diagnostic of anything, but yeah. as with any screening test, they can point us in the right direction. But I view dependency as a marker almost of withdrawal, as in, if this person stops drinking, will they get withdrawal symptoms? Exactly. And that essentially yeah. is the marker of dependence. So how can you predict that if someone stops drinking, they will get withdrawal symptoms? So essentially, there's, there's, there's two different types of prediction. There's A, will someone get withdrawal symptoms? And B, will someone get severe withdrawal symptoms as well? I'll start with the second question first, and then I'll answer the first one. So with regards to prediction of severe withdrawal symptoms, there's a tool called the PAW scale, P-A-W-S-S, that was um, invented by Maldonado et al. over at Stanford University. And there's about 10 items on that checklist that essentially, if you hit four of those criteria, you're going to be highly likely to have a severe alcohol withdrawal, in which case you need to be in hospital. if not, then I guess the question of home-based withdrawal comes into, into the mix, and we'll discuss that later on down the track. But essentially, how can you predict if someone's going to have a withdrawal? You can ask them, so in the past, when you've stopped drinking, what happens? And if, if someone says nothing, well, then you've got your answer. But then if they say things like, that was horrible, I was sweating, uh, I, I didn't think I could go on, um, uh, I had this horrible sensation in my body, and they start describing symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, and we'll talk about some yeah. of the symptoms of alcohol withdrawal, you've got your answer, essentially, yeah. as to that yeah. physiological dependence. Essentially, though, if someone's got a history of daily drinking for a number of months, you can assume there will be some level of withdrawal syndrome. Would you say that's fair, Fergal? Yeah, so so I agree with you entirely with regards to the, the to the audit scale, the pause scale, the past history, and also the prediction on the volume and the frequency of alcohol use. For me, the a cutoff on the audit score is more than sixteen. Cutoff on the pause uh, scale is four or more. Um, in ter- you know, and I also say to people the most important predictor of 
future withdrawal risk is actually the history of previous withdrawals, which goes, which speaks to your your uh, telling us, you know, what do you, what happens when you stop drinking in the past. Um, the South Australian government put out a very useful uh, guideline, and in, in that about alcohol withdrawal, and what they say is, if you've been drinking every day for two weeks, and for a bloke more than eight standard drinks a day, and for a woman more than six standard drinks a day, you are at risk of withdrawal as well. So that really what I'm hearing is there's multiple ways of predicting the risk. I think the most important is a previous history of, of, of withdrawal. But, you know, you know, we're all basically singing from the same hymn sheet here. So I think we've pretty much covered how you predict the risk of withdrawal. Moving on, how would you decide that someone was fit for a home-based withdrawal rather than actually having to come into a hospital-based setting? Any history of complicated withdrawal symptoms is automatically a red flag uh, against a home-based withdrawal. So anyone who tells me that they've had a withdrawal seizure, had any hallucinations, had any deterioration in their mental health, yeah. um, or required hospitalization for withdrawal, yeah. uh, in my book, uh, that is a red flag against a home-based um, withdrawal. Yeah. I, I, I would probably choose for home-based withdrawals people who are relatively healthy, have no medical comorbidities, um, are relatively health literate, can yep. follow instructions quite clearly, don't live alone, have access to a phone, and can at least access a hospital if things go south pretty quickly. Yeah. So I, yeah. I would try and choose a patient population where there's no underlying medical comorbidities, no co-occurring hypnosedative medication used as well, ideally, because mm -hmm. we'll be using diazepam to manage this home-based mm -hmm. withdrawal yeah. uh, and no history of complicated withdrawals and who has someone with them and can find a way of getting to hospital if things turn south. Would you yeah. say that's fair? Yeah, absolutely. Appropriate adult supervision, an appropriate contingency plan if things go south. And really, uh, you know, the lack of features of complications, so either a previous complicated withdrawal or complicating uh, polysubstance use or complicating mental health disorders or complicating physical health disorders. And also, I would add to that, not pregnant and, you know, no, no kids. I, I don't like, um, I don't think that um, people under the age of 18 should be treated with home-based withdrawal. And I don't think that um, uh, pregnant patients should be treated with a home-based withdrawal. Um, and, I, and I think it's really important to emphasize the, the, the role of, of supervising adult, responsible supervising adult, because if you're getting sick with a home-based withdrawal, it's, it's unreasonable to expect that you yourself should be escalating your own care. So there needs to be there someone who can do that on your behalf. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How do you treat alcohol withdrawal? <laughs> That's a good old chestnut, isn't it? So... There's a couple of elements to this, uh, and I think everyone automatically assumes uh, we're going to say uh, benzodiazepines, and then that's it, and that is not the case at all. It's not the case. So no. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about the symptomatic management first, and then we'll talk about benzodiazepines near the end because yeah. everyone knows about um, the role of diazepam or oxazepam in, in alcohol withdrawal. So symptomatic management is what it says. You go through a range of symptoms during alcohol withdrawal, aches and pains, gastrointestinal upset, nausea. So you need to treat those. So for aches and pains, paracetamol and ibuprofen. For nausea, um, metoclopramide um, or, or Stematol or Dancitron. For uh, gastrointestinal upset, uh, buscopan uh, or loperamide. 
And then I guess we get to um, the benzodiazepines. Oh, before I forget, how could I forget good old thiamine? Uh, you do need thiamine. Uh, <laughs> my, my teachers would probably have given me a slap on the wrist for that one. Uh, how can I forget thiamine? How can you forget uh, thiamine? So essentially, uh, in our community uh, residential withdrawal, where we don't use IV medications, we give IM thiamine. So we give 200 milligrams IM daily. In hospital, it's a bit different uh, where you have IV access. So for prophylaxis, for Wernicke's encephalopathy, 300 milligrams IV TDS. And for treatment, it's 500 milligrams IV TDS. Um, so, and then uh, talking about benzodiazepines, for people who are well and don't have uh, decompensated liver disease or, or cirrhosis, we give diazepam. Uh, home-based doses are going to be different to hospital-based doses, and we can go through that in a bit more detail probably a bit later on in this discussion. For people who we're concerned have, say, decompensated liver disease or significant liver impairment, uh, we choose oxazepam just because it doesn't undergo phase one metabolism in the liver. So diazepam is broken down into the liver, into oxazepam and temazepam. The problem with the very elderly and those with liver disease is that... Um, the diazepam does not undergo adequate phase one metabolism and then can build up and cause significant sedation. So by giving a metabolite of diazepam, we're bypassing that, that risk. Um, so those are the two benzodiazepines that we commonly use. Um, I've certainly seen lorazepam used, um, and that also has its benefits just because it can be given uh, intramuscularly and, and uh, sublingually as well. But usually I'd say the common ones are diazepam and oxazepam. Is that the case at your your service as well, Fergal? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, pretty much I just reflect. So the, the, the pillars of treatment are really symptomatic treatments, thiamine and, dia and benzodiazepines, either diazepam or in patients who are elderly or with liver disease, it's oxazepam. Now, how would you, how would you alter the treatment in someone going for a home-based withdrawal for alcohol? Because you can't give IM thiamine, uh, you know, for for alcohol withdrawal in the community. What what would you do? So I'd give oral thiamine in in, yeah. in that case. Yeah. The the dose range, essentially, the the, the dose range is kind of somewhat controversial. Uh, but we do know that thiamine is poorly absorbed orally, and it's better absorbed in divided doses. So yeah. I usually give something along the lines of one hundred milligrams three times a day of of thiamine. Yeah. I don't know if you go higher or lower than that, Fergal, but... Um... Um, I'm pretty much the same. I do 103 times a day orally, and for, just for the duration of, of the home-based withdrawal. And then after that's over, I give 100 milligrams a day for three months or until normal diet resumes, whichever is the later. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty much alcohol, isn't it? You know, I don't really think that there's any more to say about the basics of management of alcohol withdrawal? Have we missed anything out, do you reckon? I think what we possibly haven't discussed is the differences in diazepam doses in terms yeah, of home-based. Yeah, sorry, yeah, let's talk about that, management. yeah. yeah. So, um, so for we'll do home-based first. Usually yeah. home-based is going to be staged supply of diazepam. Yeah. Uh, so this is not something that we would recommend that you just write a script for 50 tablets and then let the patient manage it themselves and usually it's fixed dose regimen as opposed to hospital where it's titrated based on symptoms um, and usually the doses can range from something like say 15 milligrams four times a day on day one 
and then it kind of decreases progressively throughout the course of the week, aiming to stop at day five. So um, day two could be something along the lines of 10 milligrams uh, four times a day, then day three, 10 milligrams three times a day, day four, five milligrams three times a day, day five, five milligrams twice a day, and you stop around that time period. Uh, Everyone has slight variations on what they do, but I think the commonality usually for home-based alcohol withdrawals is you start Monday, aim to finish Friday, and aim for a five-day course of benzodiazepines. Yeah, yeah, a reducing course of benzodiazepines. Absolutely, absolutely. And how does that differ to hospital benzodiazepine regimes? So hospital benzodiazepine regimes are, are quite a lot more potential benzodiazepine usage. So usually we give dose ranges of between 5 to 20 milligrams two hourly. Usually we at our service have a max of 100 milligrams. However, that's just a guide. If someone really needs more diazepam, they can mm-hmm. they can have that. But usually yeah. that's just the marketer call the addiction medicine service after they've yeah. reached 100 milligrams. Yeah. Uh, and it's based on someone's symptoms. So you score them based on either the, uh, we use the alcohol withdrawal scale at, at my service, but there's also the CWA. Essentially, the only thing that matters is you don't really need to know the numbers, but you do need to know what scale you're using because they are numerically different. Uh, and yeah. a number on the CWA is quite different to, to the corresponding number on the AWS. Yeah. So just remember which score you're using and how to grade it. That's probably my so tip there. When we compare the CWA with the AWS, a score of 10 on the CWA is probably roughly the same as a score of four on the uh, on the AWS. A score of 20 is probably the same as a score of about 14 on the AWS. So, you know, there are significant differences. Yeah. All right. So I think we'll move on to, uh, say, cannabis. Let's mm. talk about cannabis. So how do you, what are, the, what are the criteria by which you think, oh, this patient could be dependent on cannabis and might need a medically supervised withdrawal from cannabis? Regarding dependence, it's almost like you could, Take away the name of the drug and just ask what is what is dependence, and uh, <laughs> the, the answers are going to probably be similar for most of these drugs. Yeah. In that we're looking for withdrawal symptoms, we're looking also if we're talking about a use disorder, it's it's quite different in terms of there's then there, we're talking about issues such as uh, lack of control, hazardous use of the substance, uh, repeated attempts to to cut down, but that can sometimes be slightly different to dependence as well. But essentially for dependence, what we're looking at usually is the presence of withdrawal symptoms on the cessation of, of that um, of that drug. Is that is that roughly a fair summary yeah, of, yeah, of well, all this? It goes back to, you know, the, 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 the commonest, most significant predictor of, of, of a future withdrawal is a past history of withdrawals. Uh, and, you know, uh, again, so dependence is predicated on withdrawal symptoms, as you say. I mean, I, I think if someone's using daily, well, then they've got problems. Yeah. Daily use for me is another key feature. Yes. Yeah. But you can also get dependence without daily use as well. But yeah, usually, yeah. Uh, yeah. As, a, as a rough rule of thumb, if someone is using a substance every day, I, I agree wholeheartedly, there is probably a level of dependence. Yeah. And that person will probably go through some withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. So. Do you think that cannabis lends itself to a home-based withdrawal setting? In short, yes. Uh, and I'm far more comfortable with a home-based withdrawal for cannabis than I am with alcohol. Yeah. yeah. Mainly because the withdrawal from cannabis is not going to be life-threatening versus 
uh, alcohol withdrawal where people, as we know, people have died. People have gone through delirium tremens with alcohol withdrawal. Cannabis withdrawal, and I'm not trying to minimize cannabis withdrawal, but cannabis withdrawal, though unpleasant and distressing, is less likely to cause you significant harms. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the complication of cannabis withdrawal management really is relapse, isn't it? Whereas the complications yes. of alcohol withdrawal include seizures, delirium, tremens, hallucinations, and, you know, and death. You know, yes. It's, it's very Absolutely. rare for someone to die from cannabis withdrawal. And in fact, if someone did unfortunately pass away as a result of cannabis withdrawal, I'd actually think, what else is going on? Yeah, it's, it's very, very, uh, in fact, I don't know. Have you ever come across in the literature a, a death related to can cannabis withdrawal? Not that I'm aware of, no. Yeah, yeah. So how do you, so, so what we're saying then is that cannabis withdrawal very easy in the community. What would be the reasons that you would suggest actually this patient needs an inpatient uh, detox of cannabis? Usually if there's multiple substances the person's withdrawing from. So yeah. that's probably the key one. I don't yeah. think I've done an isolated hospital-based cannabis withdrawal, to be honest with you. Yeah. Have, have I, you? I, I have, but the reasons why we did it was there were multiple previous failed home-based attempts. Okay. So they tried the home-based route, and I said, yeah, okay, well, let's bring them in. But you're right. Most of the time, it's actually in the context of polysubstance use. Mm -hmm. And how do you treat cannabis withdrawal? What do you, what do you give? Uh, this might be the hallmark of most of the topics that we talk about, but symptomatic <laughs> <Yeah>. management. <laughs> symptomatic management, yes. Yes. Uh, what so, is symptomatic management? So essentially symptomatic management is the common symptoms people talk about with cannabis withdrawal are, are nausea, insomnia, and irritability and agitation. Uh, so with nausea, antiemetics, uh, for insomnia, um, benzodiazepines, a short course, limited time frame, and not for ongoing usage. Um, and for agitation, again, uh, a limited course of benzodiazepines. And I think it's quite important that, um, and I see this a lot of the time in clinical practice as well, where there's a patient who's using cannabis and they seem to be on a prolonged course of benzodiazepines. And this is completely against the evidence. And what you're potentially doing is just creating an iatrogenic benzodiazepine dependence as well. For any withdrawal management, it, it's a time-limited intervention, and after that, those medications cease. Just because someone post-seizing cannabis has insomnia, that's another issue to be dealt with in a holistic manner, but that doesn't mean it's a prolonged cannabis withdrawal. Would, would you agree with that? Totally. Um, you, you, the maximum duration of hypnosedatives that I would give for cannabis withdrawal, and really much for any symptomatic withdrawal management, seven days maximum. Usually we try to limit it to five days. I think it's also important to recognize that you are going to get insomnia after a cannabis withdrawal, and it's going to be pretty pretty um, unpleasant. But, but it takes about three, four weeks for that insomnia to ease off. So you do need to think about other ways of managing insomnia rather than relying on, on you know, Valium or, for that matter, Tamazepam. And, and I, I think the other thing to say about that is that really it's the same management in hospital versus in the community. Um, and do you use a different regime for community-based cannabis withdrawal and the role of diazepam therein compared to community-based alcohol withdrawal? In terms of dosages, not so much because we don't really use a large amount of benzodiazepines for inpatient management of cannabis. So I think even as an inpatient, we'd probably max 
the patient out at around 20 to 30 milligrams of diazepam. Um, and it aimed to kind of wean and cease pretty quickly. And even in the community, it would probably be something along those lines, a maximum of 30 milligrams uh, per day with a rapid wean. So um, the doses don't really change all that much, which is why cannabis withdrawal lends itself so easily to, to a home-based withdrawal. Yeah. I actually use a little bit more. I, I'm, I'm, perhaps I'm a little bit more generous than you. I, I My maximum for cannabis withdrawal, both inside and outside of hospital, is 40 milligrams a day. But you know, you know the way we do the uh, the kind of the, the rapid descent of the dose of diazepam for alcohol. I tend not to do that with cannabis. It's just you know you can have as much as you like up to a maximum of forty for five days. Job done, and I just stop it suddenly. Usually, you find that the the, the dose reduces themselves. They reduce the dose themselves day four, day five. I have had one individual patient who required seven days worth, and they, they actually presented the ED with a panic attack on day five. Mm-hmm. So I extended it for another couple of days after that, but they were fine yep. in the end. Yeah. So I think that's pretty much cannabis. Is there anything else to say about that? No, I think we should probably go go on to our next topic, which I think is uh, methamphetamines, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. Methamphetamines, yeah. So again, the first question, how do you diagnose the potential for dependency on methamphetamine? Again, uh, it'll probably be uh, the answers uh, we've given for, for the last couple of topics, so <laughs> we're going to sound like a broken record. But I, I like yeah. the tool you use. Daily use is probably going to be suggestive of methamphetamine dependence uh, yeah. and, again, yeah. withdrawal symptoms on the uh, cessation of, of methamphetamine. And also, if the yeah. patient kind of gives a history of kind of repeatedly trying to cease methamphetamines and getting withdrawal symptoms, again, yeah. history, yeah. past history will... Yeah. Um, will be a marker of, of the risk of dependence. Yeah, I um, daily use really is a red flag for me for methamphetamine use disorder and, and the need for a, a detox, a managed detox. Weekly use, however, can, indi- in my experience, can indicate um, perhaps the need for a, a detox. It's a bit of a gray area, but yeah, I, I, always, I always think that weekly use for methamphetamine heralds the onset of problems. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a very addictive substance. I mean, I, I think, you know, the, so the, there's been research working out the timeline for methamphetamine dependency. So so really, within 50 days of first use, you're starting to crave it. Within 60 days of first use, you're starting to use it regularly, almost weekly or daily. And then within about 85 days of use, you're beginning to use it compulsory, mm-hmm. compulsively. So I think this alludes to another factor, which is the overall length of time that you've actually been using the drug either, you know, regularly, either daily or weekly. So, you know, um, theoretically, within 85 days of your first use, if you're using it regularly, you're using it compulsively, which then therefore means you are dependent. Yeah. How do you... um, How do you view methamphetamine in terms of home-based withdrawal versus inpatient withdrawal? I will give home-based withdrawal a chance, but I'm probably more likely to to go towards a hospital-based withdrawal than I am, say, with marijuana. Um, Just Mm. because, um, again, in my experience, don't get me wrong, you can definitely do home-based methamphetamine withdrawal, and there's certainly um, a lot of people that I think I've treated, uh, usually with non-residential nursing support as well, just to check check, check in. But um, usually people yeah. can get a bit 
um, agitated, especially post in the withdrawal phase after um, uh, after the initial phase of kind of hypersomnolence and and, and feeling a bit sleepy, and essentially yeah. for mental health monitoring as well, because sometimes people's mental health can kind of deteriorate during that withdrawal time period as well. Is that your experience as well, Fergal? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree with you. I tend not to do as much home-based withdrawal from methamphetamine. It is possible, but uh, I, I, I probably do much more inpatient stuff. But there's no reason why you can't do home-based, so long as you've got the right kind of supervision. The other thing to say about methamphetamine, as, as you've alluded to, is, is the phases of the, the withdrawal. You know, when we're talking about withdrawal from alcohol or withdrawal from cannabis, you're really, ex really expecting almost you know, immediate, within 6 to 12 hours or 24 hours possibly, you're expecting, you know, jitteriness, agitation, you know, feeling unpleasant. But that's very much different to withdrawal from methamphetamine. Do you want to just tease that out a bit? So usually uh, in the initial phase of methamphetamine withdrawal, you can kind of get what we kind of call the, the, the crash, basically, that hypersomnolent phase where people stop using methamphetamines mm. and they just fall asleep and that can be a, a 24 to 48 yeah. hour time even 72 hours really and then after that um that's you after that time period is when you're kind of treating some of the uh quote-unquote withdrawal symptoms and that's usually manifested um by agitation uh a tiny bit of hyper arousal ir um, irritation and that's again the treatment for methamphetamine withdrawal is again largely symptomatic, and it's with benzodiazepines for for most of those symptoms I've just said. Um, but it's very different. Whereas it's with most of the other withdrawal syndromes we're talking about, you you are treating the withdrawal from from day dot. Usually with methamphetamine, you've got a lag before you're starting to treat uh, some of those withdrawal symptoms. Yeah, absolutely, and that's the key time when they transition from hypersomnolence where really you've got to wake them up to make sure they're eating and drinking that you know then they suddenly become agitated and that's really the risk of relapse time so they need the benzodiazepines to calm them down because otherwise the, the temptation to get up and use is just almost overwhelming how long would you use benzodiazepines in the methamphetamine withdrawal five to seven days uh usually closer to the five yeah. um as well uh yeah. and just I usually, again, maybe, I don't know what your dose range is, but I usually max out around 30 milligrams. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if, I don't know if I'm, I'm being a bit tighter than you, Fergal, but... Uh... <laughs> so... Yeah, I, I use 40 maximum, similar yep. to cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you say you maximum you go five to seven days in terms of the use yep. of diazepam? Max. Yeah, 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 max five to seven days, yeah. So um, I suppose before we move on, is there anything else to say about withdrawal management for methamphetamine? No, other than the fact that um, with a lot of these substances, and this is not necessarily related to methamphetamine, um, if addiction or substance use disorders were just about um, getting rid of the physiological dependence, everyone would be cured after going through a, a detox or withdrawal management admission. Uh, after the withdrawal management is really when our relapse prevention interventions need to kick into gear. And this, after going through a detox or withdrawal management, no one is cured and no one is uh, suddenly free from the desire to, to use any of the substances we've mentioned. Addiction and substance use disorders are complex beings and it really is a biopsychosocial condition as we've discussed through our previous episodes of Cracking Addiction. So uh, the 
there is ongoing need for support and linkage in with either peer support or AOD workers and getting those relapse prevention strategies uh, in place. Yeah, the dependency lasts a week. Addiction, which is a chronic relapsing disorder of, of the brain, lasts sometimes a lifetime. Yeah, it's really important to make that distinction. And I suppose that's really ever more so pertinent when we consider opioids. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, we, 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 we're using, we're, we're going to talk about opioid withdrawal, but I think actually what I want to say first and foremost is I never actually encourage withdrawal from opioids. What, what's your consideration? hundred percent. Uh, opioids <laughs> are one of those um, drugs where withdrawing of opioids can increase your mortality. Uh, abstinence um, of opioids or forced abstinence from opioids can increase your mortality. And it's one of those drugs where we are trying to maintain tolerance so people are at less chance of overdosing when they use opioids. So, um, and we'll probably talk about it later on in, the, in, in this section on opioids, but it's one of those um, treatments where we are not trying to ideally withdraw someone off opioids, but when someone's admitted into our withdrawal unit, we're trying to commence them on something like opioid substitution therapy to manage withdrawal symptoms, but also maintain opioid tolerance. So it's so a person is at less risk of, of harms. Yeah. So that's the distinction between opioids and all the other substances. All the other substances require withdrawal management, but then followed by relapse prevention therapy. But in the case of opioids, we tend not to withdraw people from opioids we tend to initiate opioid replacement therapy. Now, here's a question. Uh, some people say to me, doctor, why are you using opioids to treat an opioid addiction? Mm -hmm. You know, why, Surely you're just using petrol to put out the fire. What, what would you say to that? I think what I'd say is there's good evidence over a number of decades that opioid substitution therapy um, really does change lives and help people who've got opioid use disorders. A lot of the time, people with opioid use disorders have um, issues with, say, heroin or short-acting opioids, um, and there's uh, issues with withdrawal management. People are trying to avoid withdrawal, so trying to use heroin uh, or those short-acting opioids quite mm. frequently. That can lead to issues yeah. related to, to overdose, um, uh, and it can also lead to people requiring, say, larger amounts and uh, developing tolerance to, to those shorter-acting opioids can lead to uh, increased social harms, um, uh, uh, increased uh, crime, uh, acquisitive crime, etc. Putting someone on opioid substitution therapy is replacing a short-acting opioid uh, that requires multiple-time-a-day multiple dosing to an opioid that is either single-day dosing or in the case of the long-acting injectable buprenorphine preparations, either weekly or monthly injections as well. And what this does is it manages withdrawal symptoms. You no longer have people who are withdrawing off opioids, so uh, and people can get quite distressed with withdrawal symptoms, and it can be really unpleasant to, to, to see someone in such distress. But it also maintains tolerance because, as we've mentioned earlier, the biggest chance of overdose is when you've previously been quite tolerant you've, for whatever reason, not used any opioids for a while, whether that's been forced or after a period of incarceration or, or whatever, then you're suddenly exposed to uh, your previous dosage of heroin. 
and you take it and you overdose because you've lost your tolerance to that and that is a uh, enough of a dose that can stop you breathing so um, cause cause a respiratory arrest so that's the purpose yeah. of opioid substitution therapy you're using a different type of opioid that is longer lasting to try and stabilize someone and it's not it's it's a harm reduction intervention and the goal is is stabilization of an opioid use disorder Sure. So with that in mind, what would you comment on in terms of the suitability of opioid replacement therapy and the, the delivery of ORT in the community? I think it belongs in the community. Uh, you and I had GPs, Fergal, and uh, we've, been, we've been doing this for, for, for years, right? So it's, it, it, is, it, yeah. is, uh, it is a skill that can be mastered by anyone. Uh, there is nothing special about opioid substitution therapy. Uh, it is one of the more rewarding things you can actually do in in medicine, uh, believe it or not, um, and it's yeah. uh, it's also a lot of fun, believe it or not. Uh, so yeah. it is it has a very very strong place in the community, and in fact, I believe it belongs more so in the community than in hospital practice, where it's harder to access prescribers. And so that's a key, another key difference, isn't it? All the other substances were kind of humming and hawing. Is it better in hospital? Is it better in the community? We know that opioid replacement therapy is best delivered by community prescribers. Absolutely. Yeah. Now let's let's talk a little bit finally about you know supervision and and, and really supervision in in the community for home based withdrawal. What what kind of thoughts do you have when you know when you're thinking about supervision and you're contemplating any home based withdrawal? Anything in medicine that you do, you have to be happy that it's a safe intervention and that's both medication but also any behavioral interventions or in this case withdrawal management so with regards to supervision i'd want to make sure that this is a person that lives somewhere that is not too isolated that can have someone that can check in on them that has access to a phone that can access a hospital if need be that can follow instructions that is physically well enough and robust enough that the strain of withdrawal is not going to uh, precipitate any medical crises or psychosocial crises as well, um, yeah. and that they are not taking any medications that may interact or cause complications with any of the medications I'm prescribing. Yeah, that's absolutely foundational, uh, to which I would also add that really it behoves the treating team to have a community prescriber and to have arrangements for clinical supervision of the patient. Uh, and so, for instance, it might be that you start the patient on a withdrawal program on a Monday through to Friday, and you see the patient every day yes. or every second day as a prescriber. Maybe you delegate the, the, the second day reviews to either another member of the clinical team or a practice nurse or a district nurse or an AOD worker. But really, it behoves, you know, if you're going to be part of a home-based withdrawal team, you need to have clear guidelines and a clear understanding of how often the patient needs to be physically examined and seen as they progress through the withdrawal. It's not good enough just to give a prescription to the patient or the patient's care and say, okay, off you go, I'll see you in two weeks. You have to see the patient. And that also may also include daily pickup of medication from the pharmacist. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think daily pickup of medication gets a bad uh, bad reputation, but I do it quite mm -hmm. frequently. And if I'm concerned mm -hmm. about someone um, and their and their safety or not even that, but I just want to make sure that the adequate dose is being given. I, I have no hesitation in doing daily pickup, and I think it's something that um, should be potentially done more of in the community. Yeah, yeah. 
people, some people see it as a punitive intervention, whereas I very much see it as a therapeutic intervention. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, Philippe, I think we've covered everything. Uh, Is there anything, are there any final pearls of wisdom you'd like to say on this subject? I, I think I, I I have exhausted uh, my knowledge of all these uh, <laughs> all these drugs. <laughs> uh, so again, it has been an, an action-packed episode of of cracking addiction. We've covered um, alcohol, marijuana, uh, methamphetamine, and opioids, and how to both um, identify dependency, manage withdrawal, and touched on home-based uh, withdrawal in particular as well as discussed relapse prevention. So thank you again for your company on this episode of Cracking Addiction and bye for now.